0: sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk.
1: Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he almost dislocated his shoulder giving me a high five last night. It's Andrew Greenwald! We watch sports. That's what you're talking about. You got big Cody Bellinger energy. (laughs)
0: Listen. Listen, people... I don't know what the Venn diagram is for people who watch playoff baseball but also listen to this podcast, but before we even get into the rundown, last night Dodgers hero Cody Bellinger hit a big dinger in a crucial moment and then celebrated by throwing out his shoulder, by throwing it into another player. And I watched this with like, honestly, I felt great because what I wanted to express to our listeners is aging can be treacherous, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are things that you give up along the way, but the one thing that you gain. Is the rock solid confidence in the knowledge that you will never dislocate your shoulder by violently celebrating a home run? No, That's we just, just do, off the table.
1: We just arm lock our takes. So today on the watch, we're going to be talking <laughs> yes. about a uh, little bit of actually the baseball comes up because I want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of passive TV watching, okay. and I want to talk about uh, my experience with Disney Plus's. The Right Stuff, which I checked out, which ties mm. into that. And we'll talk a little bit about the most recent episode of Fargo, which aired last night. So let's and get Good into... And Lord Bird. We watch Good Lord oh, Bird, Good Lord right? Bird, right? No. Yeah. So let's get into the show. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages...
2: Restrictions all apply. See website for details.
1: All right, Greenwell, we're back. So yesterday was a great and long day of sports. Well, they weren't all great because um, the Eagles Ravens game was tough for your boy. But I basically spent Mm. with some some breaks for exercise, Mm. for conversation with my wife, for. Mm for personal stock taking, but for the most part, was on the couch watching TV from 10 to 10. Wow. Yeah, because I watched from the Eagles through a couple of other football games, and then I think I watched Fargo, and then I watched the Dodgers game.
0: Do you have alerts set so that your wife can sort of rotate your body on the couch so that sores don't develop? Like, (laughs) what is your... You make me sound like the guy in seven. <laughs> I'm, concerned. I'm concerned. I'm concerned, but please go on. Go I
1: walked on. around. You can see. I mean, you can see that I'm I'm looking better than I ever have. It's um, true. But something that occurred to me over the course of the like basically 12 hours of watching TV on and off, which was, uh, you know, because it's live sports, you're not fast forwarding. You sort of start to find yourself slipping back into the way we used to watch TV, which is mm-hmm. at the mercy of what was on at the moment. And while you could have some wiggle room with your DVR or whatever, for the most part, you couldn't like watch ahead or binge watch and grab three shows, and you couldn't have like six different streaming platforms open. And also, just like the experience of watching these playoff games is until you get really annoyed, which happens somewhere around minute 47, you are kind of like half sort of watching commercials. And I think I texted you at some point during that Dodgers game, and I was like, Commercials are fucking crazy now, man. <laughs> like they—they yeah. they really are now split to either directed by Carrie Fukunaga or mm-hmm. a crazy Eddie's commercial from 1984, where they're just like trying to hammer you home with like some price point for some product you don't need. Yeah. So, anyway, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about because I think you've had a little bit of an existential cloud over the show for the last two week or so, where we're just like, there's a lot to watch, but there's not a lot that's inspiring us, mm-hmm. and. I think that there's like a little bit of pressure because I think TV, since it's sort of moved into this, it can be both a world-building, serialized, long-form mm-hmm. franchise, or it can be essentially a movie that is, just happens to be sitting next to a TV show, or it can be a 27-minute groundbreaking dramedy that teaches us about what it means to be alive. It can be so many different things that this simple act of, I'm just watching this box, has kind of faded away. And yesterday was like, you know, I don't I don't want to make it too I don't want to make too tidy of a of a bow here, but it actually reminded me of sometimes the joy of getting up and walking into the other room for a snack and just being like what did I miss? Did anything happen? You know, whether it's sports or whether it's it's something that you're actually watching like a story.
0: Yes, I haven't watched TV in a long time. Yeah, I think that's not a surprise. No, but the TV that we're talking
1: about, like I'm watching Fox or I'm watching NBC for three hours.
0: And partly, you know, yeah, that's because of what we've been covering in the podcast, which is primarily on on cable or streaming services. But but also because I was just personally not ready to welcome sports back into my life, into my own personal uh, pandemic bubble. I just, I couldn't really find the space to do it this year, except I did want to watch Game seven of the NLCS because yes. I like I like baseball, and and the
1: baseball is good. The ba- that was baseball, good. like they, 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 that has been a good series, and it's like an int- it was an interesting series, and I still hate the Braves, so it was great.
0: That was really satisfying for both of us, I think. Um, and I think that uh, there was something deeply satisfying, pleasurable, but also comforting in exactly what you're saying—the rhythms of it. So, for example, getting up. The politics of getting up during a prestige television show in a non-single household are fraught. Mm. They are Dude. deeply fraught.
1: Dude, yes, yeah. yes. I know. <laughs> uh,
0: I don't want to name names, but one of the members of my household right. likes to get a snack after we've spent 45 minutes deciding what to watch and after the opening credits of whatever we've decided to watch. yes. That's when the hunger hits.
1: So the opening credits hit. You're done with that. So you're not a skip intro person.
0: Well, no, great point. It depends. When it's something as lively as the French serial Call My Agent, well, we like watching it all the way through. But I'm saying maybe even it's a movie. You can't skip intro on a movie. So I am just generally placing that's when that's when the tummies rumble in shame <laughs> Moi.
1: I think we have the the title for this podcast, guy. So, so when the so tummies all of rumble.
2: This.
0: But I'm only bringing that up to say that there was a moment when I was watching uh, baseball when during the time of that game, when it was on, like I, yeah, I, I I got up to get a snack. I'm not above such, such quotidian concerns, but I got up kind of near the end of the commercials knowing full well that I would return to at worst case scenario, two and one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't going to miss anything that, that important. And similarly, just old familiar uh, household rhythms, like, your boy folded some laundry during the seventh inning. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that felt very freeing. That's not a second screen experience, but that's how we used to experience television. And let me just say, overall, the greatest pleasure of it—not just saying this because I'm doing the podcast with you live right now—but we had a little, we had some fun, we had yeah. some text going, we
1: had some jokes at the expense of the Braves pitching
0: staff. <laughs> Mostly their relief, their their relief team, and they're I, you bull, know, their bullpen. they their bullpen. I don't want to you know, cast aspersions or make anything political. But I feel like they've definitely considered kidnapping some elected officials. Like, like maybe just lightly. You know? I, so, who's to,
1: did they attend the Sturgis rally? Who is to say?
0: Who Who knows? <laughs> I'm just saying that Plandemic is in their queue. That, Yo, it's just they're asking questions.
1: Well, I don't want to name names either. <laughs> Separate from that, though, will you share with our listeners what Mark Melanson's Twitter bio is? Uh, is,
0: is that is that... Are we sure how we're saying it? Yeah, it's Mark uh, Melanson. Oh, okay, because okay, I've never actually heard it out loud. Both Chris and I agree that we thought that he was Mark Melancon. He was, but he apparently player. was not. Yeah, and he's he's not. He we shouldn't really dunk on him because he he lost the Dodgers last night along with the rest of <laughs> his, his <laughs> Braves. <laughs> really teammates. don't care. But uh, I thought
1: you were going to say something. We shouldn't dunk on him because he's actually like a great American who's like, teaches public school in his part-time. He is a great
0: American to (laughs) me because I just feel, while we're just doing this, like, you know, make TV great again, ode to the way things used to be, deeply conservative on many levels, I'd share with Chris that this picture's Twitter bio suggests a life that I would like to lead. And his Twitter bio is, been known to dive with great whites and walk with cheetahs, exclamation point. Uh-huh. Jesus believer, husband, father, strike thrower and thrill seeker. <laughs> I mean, that's the energy I want. Yeah. Post-pandemic. Like I just feel so simple. It's like Do you I, think that his I, wife and shark, kids?
1: Yeah, but d- like is that like husband, father, thrill seeker are two competing impulses to me? They are.
0: He's quiet, quiet, loud. He's like a grunge song, you know what I mean? <laughs> and this dude sees a shark, he swims with it. He sees a cheetah, He runs with it. He sees a child. He parents it. And if he sees a goddamn ball, he throws the shit (laughs) out of it. And like, that is so contrary to my experience on this earth that I love it. (laughs) But anyway, just to say that sharing some LOLs with a pal while watching something that is live, that is live has also been kind of removed from, and I don't think it's just a podcasting thing where we have things on our viewing plate that we enjoy for the show. We have things that we watch on our own that we enjoy with our spouses. And then we have things that we admire that we watch for the show. And all of those present different, uh, place different demands on your attention, but none of them really allow much room for just chatting and making it social. So all of that was, was really fun.
1: So I had the same experience where after the Dodgers game and I was like done for the evening, I started watching, um,
0: you weren't done for the evening. You started watching something else. All I do,
1: like, what I, all I do is watch stuff. I'm not, I don't okay. got to worry about anything else. You know, It's like I just watch stuff and I think about watching stuff and then I think about what I didn't watch and then I read a little bit, but you know, <laughs> have, on a Sunday.
0: Have you, have you considered running with cheetahs? <laughs> I should throw some
1: strikes. Okay. Um, I watched a little bit of Haunting of Bly Manor, which I am almost done with, and which I have been enjoying quite a bit. Wow. But Haunting of Bly Manor is the exact opposite of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Haunting of Bly Manor is not only is it very dark and is essentially rooted in the trauma of the characters in the show, um, but is that kind of blink and you'll miss it. There was a ghost in the back of the frame. You know, like that kind of um, Easter egg hunting, not strike throwing, Easter egg hunting. If I was Mark Blanson, I would be like, husband, no kids, Easter egg hunter. (laughs)
0: Less cool. Yeah, it's not as cool.
1: But because of that, that sort of training that we've given ourselves, I think largely since Game of Thrones, although I also feel like Lost in 24 were like, you cannot fucking get up. Don't, don't miss any of this. Yeah. Um, except for commercials, obviously. But I feel like when I was watching House of Bly Manor, I, I would get up to go to the bathroom or to grab a drink of water. My, my wife, Phoebe, would just be like, you know, like you, you can't do this because you're actually missing like a crucial, finally a crucial plot point in this show. And I was like, but we've been watching the show for the better part of eight and a half hours, and I feel like I've like as a forty two year old adult have like earned the right to go grab a glass of water. Like I should be able to do that and not miss the, ex- the entire thing explained to me. Now that's my own anxiety. That's that's everybody's own neurosis about like you have to watch certain things in a certain way, but. I just thought it was really cool. Like I, I wound up watching uh, the first episode of the right stuff on Disney today, and I know that story. I know that story Mm -hmm. from Tom Wolfe's book. I know that story from the Philip Kaufman movie. I know that story from just like years and years and years of having it repeated to you. And
0: I I don't want to put you on the spot, Chris. And I know that I, I I believe I know that he's been excised from this adaptation. But what would Chuck Yeager's Twitter bio? Yo, man,
1: fucking me and Sam Shepard are not looking on this happily. Just let me put it that way.
0: Justice for Yeager.
1: Yeah, no, Chuck. And, and in some ways, I know that that is a, a really strongly held belief of yours, that Chuck Yeager uh, needs more representation.
0: Yeah, in, in the arts. <laughs> yeah. I do <did> think that? <laughs> and
1: so you'll be boycotting the
0: right stuff because of it? I got to find a reason to boycott it. And that's my chosen one.
1: But uh, because I'm so familiar with the, the story of, of, I mean, you know, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but like I've watched enough stuff and read enough stuff that I feel like I got it. I know what happened. I was able to watch this show for pure pleasure. So I was able to watch it and also get up and grab a pretzel chip and then come back and be like, oh yeah, right. So this is Gus Grissom. This is, this is uh, Alan Shepard. This is John Glenn. Obviously NASA and its humble beginnings in an office in Langley. Like, got it, got it. And it was like very expertly made, dude. I have to say. You know, the sets look incredible. Everything looks amazing. And each scene... Is just like, let's get in and out. Let's get in and out. Let's get in and out. What are we trying to say here? What's the like? What is the most efficient way to do it to explain that Alan Shepard has some sort of psychic wound that he's trying to heal with drinking and women? What do we do about John Glenn who is like drinking seltzer at the bar while all the astronauts are drinking scotch? Like all this stuff, and it's just like, man, I really love sometimes feeling like I can look away from TV, and maybe that's a strange thing for us to discuss.
0: Well. I know we're saving a larger conversation about it for the We can make it all pod, flow into
1: one though. Yeah. We can make it but, can all happen this, at once.
0: But this makes me think of Fargo season four. Okay. And we should say here, like, this is clearly this is just us, this this podcast is generally just us chatting. And so if you haven't watched these episodes, I don't know how spoilery we're gonna get. We're gonna be just talking about them in general. If we start to say something we're um, revealing and you're not caught up, we'll throw up a siren or something. But Just to say, I wonder how much we are misweighting vibe. Hmm. Because you're talking about shows where you can sort of skip around and not miss anything. And I would say, with deep admiration and respect, Fargo Season 4 is a show you could get up and leave the room and come back to. Because chances are, a character is sitting down and saying, you know what the deal with America is? And then monologuing for a while.
1: Yeah. And just so people know, no spoilers. Andy's not kidding. That is literally like no. Two thirds of the scenes are a discussion about the nature of the country,
0: and and for what it's worth, my great, my favorite basketball player of all time is Allen Iverson. So I know what it's like to watch and not only watch root for an ISO offense where <laughs> everyone just stands around and one guy dribbles a lot and goes to the hoop. Like I get that. And side note, if it was Ben Wishaw doing that with just I don't know the actor equivalent of Takembe Mutombo is just clearing out the paint. I would watch that for 10 hours. But my point being, what the show is servicing primarily, at least through five hours, and I gotta be clear, five hours, like each episode is 59 minutes plus, Mm -hmm. is a very specific vibe. And the vibe is mob movie. You know, Mm -hmm. it's increasingly, it's a little bit Miller's Crossing because that is the Coen Brothers mob movie, but it's by far the, the least connected in my in my view to the Cohn Brothers DNA. And it is giving you very, very primal thing that people who love mob stories like, which is, you know, the the hothead gives a long speech and he is he gonna kill the guy or isn't he going to kill the guy? Spoiler, he's gonna kill the guy. Mm-hmm. And that scratches a very uh popular itch, right? This is a show that, you know, fits in with the type of programming that we've been covering, which is to say that it deserves, and I'm not saying it doesn't deserve, full attention, mm-hmm. cinematic consideration and respect as a prestige television show made by one of our prestige auteurs. But what I'm beginning to sense from a lot of these prestige programs, and I, and, and there are others that we could name check here to talk about as well, maybe they're not that. You know, maybe they are TV where you could just kind of duck in and duck out unless you are part of the... 10% or whatever of the audience that this is exactly what you want and mm-hmm. you're vibing on it. And so for you, the right stuff, which has gotten mixed reviews, I haven't checked in with it, but it's gotten mixed reviews, but that is your vibe. You have always been a speed demon right, in the skies. And so for you, you plugged in and that just, it just, it feels good, right?
1: Yes. And it's also a much more efficient scorer than Fargo. So and, I would help, say, that,
0: help me land this this space shuttle.
1: So there's a couple of scenes in the most recent episode of Fargo that we can talk about without talking about the end of that episode explicitly until we like put up the spoiler sirens. That I think illustrate what I'm talking about. Now there is plenty of things in right stuff where characters are essentially giving a glorified presentation of their own character breakdown. Like you can almost imagine, like this is what. Mark Lafferty and, and Will Staples, who, who worked on the right stuff, like almost told the actor, like, this is what John Glenn is about. This is what Gus Grissom is about. This is what Alan Shepard is about. And you can, you can just kind of like, you almost have these very illustrative scenes to just sort of be like, ah, that guy is a family guy or that guy is not. Mm-hmm. And once they get through those things, I feel like the story just has momentum. When you enter a scene, there might be a cool shot of like two guys standing, you know, there's like a two guys standing in an empty kind of lo-fi office in Langley and they're like welcome to NASA so you get like a very clear picture of NASA's humble beginnings. But with Fargo, I feel like many of the scenes in that show are dedicated to God, we just got we got this framed up just right, man. So we're going to spend an extra 45 seconds or 3 minutes on These two guys perfectly backlit in the window of this classic American diner, standing in a way that no two people ever actually have a conversation with the light streaming through the windows of this whited out Midwestern winter. And these two really good actors just delivering meaty uh, monologues about almost told entirely in anecdotes, you know what I mean? Like these sort of like, well, I have a story to tell you and I have a story to tell you. And then here is the fortune cookie of wisdom that we will extract Mm -hmm. from these two stories. And I think that when you stretch that out over, like you're saying, five full hours, and it's just that. It's just character enters a scene and that entire scene seems to carry with it the weight of of a feature film then I just think that the dynamics of the show get really thrown off because there's no quiet loud to go back to the grunge thing you're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. I I agree. And I think that what we are bumping up against, this is this is a different kind of existential conversation than the I'm too much of a snowflake to handle extreme sadistic <laughs> violence this close to an election, which is a conversation I'm still willing to have, but maybe yeah. we, can, we can lay off it for a week. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to bring in, there was this article that I had a lot of time for by Sonia Soraya and Variety. It was basically like, has Peak TV peaked? And Was it in um, Vanity Fair or Variety? I'm sorry, it was in Vanity Fair. Yeah. People should check this out. And the one thing, the one nit that I would pick with it is I think that we have, and I realize this is self-defeating on a number of levels for myself as a podcast host in search of material, as a former critic who contributed to some of this, and now as a, as a creator who wants to still be a part of it. I just feel like the, the the framing is, is, is challenging because I think we sometimes approach things this way in the podcast, but I think this article does as well, which is that TV is great. And this current crop of programming, or since the glut in production has only increased um, over the last few years is somehow diluting that, that maybe it's just not nearly as great anymore. And I feel like it's worth as a, just a um, contextual corrective to say for 90 years or 80 years, TV has been really mediocre. (laughs) That is TV's calling card. Uh Like they've always made a shit ton of TV and most of it's not great. Yeah. And some of the not great stuff is fine, which is a different category. Yeah, It's fine because it's on and it's enjoyable and it's your shows and you can it could be days of your uh, the days of our lives. Or you Caroline trick yourself in the and, city or whatever, yeah. Or, or trick yourself and say it's Grey's Anatomy, which is scratching similar itches and doing it expertly for, you know, in it's well into its second decade at this point, right? I think that what's... So I don't necessarily know that we're owed greatness. I think that what's changed and what TV definitely hasn't figured out yet is how to be great and still be TV rather than just be great for people whose dreams were not realized in movies and are now being realized by flush streamers who want well, a lot a, of cash. And this, is,
1: this is the thing that I would actually push back on than what you just mm-hmm. said is that I, I used to think, I think maybe circa two, 2013, 14 when True Detective came out, mm-hmm. where I was like, truly a, a a real cinematic artist has been married with a, what I considered to be a very good, great writer for that first season. I know you disagree. And they, this is the result.
0: Is this? I, he's, I think he's great on Instagram.
1: This he's fucking he's on one. He's having an incredibly normal one. On Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Nick. Uh, the marriage between Fuganaga and, and Pizzolatto's stuff. I thought like introduced this cinematic energy to television that I don't know that I had fully re- recognized in another, another show before then. And then since then, it was like the directors are coming. Right? The directors are coming mm-hmm. and they're going to make TV even more beautiful to look at and more artistically worthwhile to savor while still being able to tell stories in this long form way. And there are no, no longer the restriction of we got to turn the theater over in 90 minutes and all of these great adult dramas and thoughtful comedies and interesting genre experiments that no longer get made by the movie studios because they're just in blockbuster territory. They can all come to, to TV, quote unquote. But Now, I think the result of that is not quite, oh, it's cinema, but told over the course of six hours. It's this new beast. It's like whatever came out of the lab is this kind of, more often than not, kind of bloated, but also not actually as provocative visually as you would expect, given how often gorgeous it is. You know, how often it's like, ah, oh, you guys definitely got an incredible cinematographer well, and great production design and great set design and great sets or whatever. But it's actually like, I don't know what I'm being told by the visual language that you're using here.
0: Well, let me put it in in even more um, contemporary terms, which is that during this pandemic, certainly in Los Angeles, I know in a lot of the major cities, um, restaurants, restaurants, are closed for indoor dining. And one of the results of that, to support them, or to stay alive, many of the very best restaurants, we'll just speak to the city, but I know it's happening elsewhere, have converted themselves on the fly at great expense and and labor into takeout operations. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to do my part because I want to save restaurants because no one else in the government is. So, you know, getting really wonderful food once or twice a week from really wonderful restaurants. But I'll say something about really wonderful, chefy food. Mm-hmm. There's a reason you go to the restaurant to enjoy it, much like there's a reason why you go to the theater to enjoy something expensive, and sumptuous, and limited. Because when you bring the food home, and it's calibrated for an evening out with all everything else turned up to 11. And I'm not talking, I know I'm mixing metaphors, but I'm not talking about the Dolby surround Atmos system or whatever in the theater. I'm talking about the drinks you're drinking, the volume in the room, the excitement, the attention you're paying to every detail. Sharing,
1: with it, sharing it with other people, yeah.
0: That all figures into the intensity of the experience. When you bring home food, which has been beautifully prepared, and then put into a, a paper box and put onto your table with, you know, with a tablecloth with the stain on it or whatever and on your, your plates. And yet the seasoning and everything and the ingredients are still super, super high end and intense. Something feels off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the calibration is off. Like it's, it tastes too salty. It's not too salty, but it's too much.
1: If you get a steak from one of these restaurants that you're talking about, mm-hmm. it's still pretty good. They still probably cooked it with an entire stick of butter. And they did did it their way. The way restaurants make steaks where you're just like, what did you you guys do this?
0: And they're spooning the butter on. They did it.
1: They did the great job. But when you get it home, even if you live like six minutes away from the place, it's still not as good as when they bring it right out of the broiler and put it on your table.
0: And this is the moment we're kind of in with television where we are being given... These sumptuous, almost indulgent resources, and they're being served to us in the same takeout boxes in our homes. And something is slightly off. And
1: so, is that television or is that our perception of what life is like now? Because we have just been I, kind of having this simulacrum.
0: I know. I think that, you know, this is, this is, this is falling back on some arguments that we've made before, but I'll, I'll, I'll say them again that, like, I, I just don't think it's worth comparing today's moment, 2020's prestige television to 10 years ago because the thing that separated Mad Men or The Sopranos uh, or what have you from the Comey rule mm-hmm. or whatever is that Mad Men and Sopranos are TV shows. Yeah. They yeah. were made by people who had worked in TV for a long time who broke story in familiar ways and invested in character and long-term development over multiple seasons. The Comey rule is a, show, it's, it's a completely different thing. And I don't mean to pick on that. But I think that I think that, that Sonia brought mentioned that in our article. So that's why I'm using that as a, as an example. You know, it's it's cinematic. There are stars doing weighty things, trying to tell you something important in a very limited amount of time. It's just simply not even attempting to do the same thing. And increasingly you'll notice like outside of succession, what other shows in 2020 are just TV shows? No, I mean, you know, everybody's trying to be either a movie or... An, and look, I made an anthology series. I get it, you know. Uh, it's very alluring from a creative point of view to be like, I'm just going to leave it all in the field and tell this whole story and dazzle you over however many episodes. But it's not just that we're, we've lost some of... And this is something I talked to Eric Kripke, the boys showrunner about, yeah. during the interview last week. Because he's made maybe more hours of television than anyone else this century. Because yeah, like Supernatural, which he created... Supernatural, yeah. 15th and final season you know, he he was basically like, I was like, what skills are we losing here? Because he's like, look, I'm fundamentally, I, I, he had a lot to say about what he feels the boys is accomplishing politically and, you know, what he wants to say about the culture. But he's also like, I'm a carny. My job is to entertain people. And that's fundamentally what I do. And that's why I do things like bottle episodes or road trip episodes or whatever. And I think we're at this strange point right now, where... We, and I say this as consumers and podcasters and and maybe even as creators, we are definitely prioritizing breaking the mold over the mold.
1: This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, The thing that you're describing is exactly about The Sopranos, is exactly how I felt watching Borgen on Netflix. Okay. So, I, we talked about this last week a little bit in our grab bag of recommendations, but this is a, a Danish political drama that aired, I mean, I guess like what, about 10 years ago, I think, um, and is on Netflix now. Uh, and they're actually bringing the cast back, I believe, to do a, another season of it. And I've been watching it and it's, you know, critically lauded show. So it's not like I'm not discovering anything here. But the thing that's been wild about it is the value of the episodes of Borgen. Like, I cannot believe how tight they can do. Uh, will she pass this finance bill? That's the episode. And now the guy who maybe got excommunicated from her cabinet or from her political operation might come back and the TV host, is she pregnant? And whose baby is it? And what's going on with her? There's A, B, C, D plots. There's other stuff going on. There's like a larger portrait of democracy or uh, parliamentary democracy in action or whatever. But essentially, there is a point to the episode. And I think that a lot of TV I watch, and I I actually have, I think, a lot of mixed feelings about Fargo. I think the way we've been talking about it makes it sound like I'm like so out on it. But like I actually do... Love Ben Wishaw. I love parts of it, but I can't help but feel like some of Fargo winds up culminating in the last forty-five seconds of the episode. Like that—that that is actually that's what the episode is about. Mm-hmm. Is whatever the thing is at the very end that makes you feel like, well, I and, guess I got to watch next week, and the rest is vibe. Mm-hmm. That's not what Borgin's like. That's not what The Sopranos was like. That well, was that right. was f-
0: story. That was and so and so. What I'm curious about is what are we doing here? Because the one of the main lessons of the streaming revolution is that people fucking love television. What I mean by that is they love television in large numbers and to a large degree the way they have always loved television. And whether that means using the pandemic to rewatch Breaking Bad, as people I know are doing, or whether it means using it to rewatch um, Parks and Recreation, as mm-hmm. I know they're doing, or to get familiar with Succession, like, people want their stories. They want their stories. And people who make TV, I mean, this, this goes back to David Chase. It goes back well before him. I mean, remember, David Chase didn't want to make TV anymore. And he was frustrated making yeah. Sopranos. Everybody wanted the golden ticket out of making TV so they could make movies and be more creative. And the last 10 years, people who made TV won the lottery, right? Like, you can still work in this highly lucrative field, but you can do whatever you want. And everyone was like, Great, I'll take it. Good reason mm-hmm. to do it, and it's produced some incredible, incredible achievements over the last few years. But I have to think that people, you know, certainly Netflix too. Like, I think when Netflix signed Ryan Murphy to hundreds of millions of dollars, they essentially that's carte blanche, right? Whatever you want. And one of the things that made him very appealing is that he he's a high volume creator, he's prolific. He makes a lot of shows, yeah. But I have to think what they were really hoping they were going to get out of him was high volume um, anthologies like American Horror Story. But more specifically, like, could you do Nip Tuck again? Like a show that'll run for a bunch of years that people will like to watch. And I'm very curious about Shonda Rhimes's new shows for Netflix because she's so good at doing that and people Mm -hmm. want that. And so... Is that what she, will she just use these new resources to make elevated versions of the types of beloved shows that she's made in the past? Or will she be like, great, bet, I'm done with this. You know, yeah, like right. now I can do what I want and make um, origin stories for characters in 50-year-old <laughs> movies like Nurse Ratchet. You know, like I, that, that's the eternal question for me. And so I, I wonder if we will look back on this time. And, and, I, and I think it'll take some kind of, conversation-grabbing, norm-rattling show to get people, everybody on board with this. But I have to think that in boardrooms and backrooms, people are saying, like, you know, like, at the end of Back to the Future, like, we 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 got to go. Like, we got to fix this. Yeah. You know, we got to start making TV shows again because... I don't,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that... I think that's a really good point about, like, this idea of norm-shattering because I think that that was and if you'll forgive me for bringing this up, kind of what I liked about Ted Lasso so much is that...
0: um, Forgive me. Everyone says that around me now.
1: I thought that it subverted certain tropes of a quote-unquote workplace sitcom Mm -hmm. in really intelligent, non-fussy ways. Mm -hmm. So characters who you would have just been like, that's going to be the heavy, and they must be vanquished, wound up being absolutely lovable. And... Characters that you were like, this guy um, has to like remain the butt of the joke or the punchline and can never be the sentimental heart of it. They they subverted that.
0: Because I feel I, like you just described my arc on this podcast and then your arc on this podcast. <laughs> it was beautiful.
1: But you know what I mean? Like I think you can still find that out there, but those guys never lost sight of making a really sweet, entertaining show. And I don't think a lot of people maybe start from, hey, the the number one thing is to make a really super entertaining TV show for people, whether it makes them laugh or cry or whatever. Like, let's keep it that, and then start messing around with it.
0: I'll say, you know, I can't get too specific about details, but one of the challenges that I've been facing over the last few weeks uh, and months is the project that I'm working on. I've gotten further and further into the weeds with it. Is this contemporary problem? Not to say that I'm have solved it because I certainly haven't. But the challenges of the project I'm working on are that it has a enormous hook. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a limitless possibility, I think, um, yeah. for storytelling. It also has to, to because I this is what I care about. It has to be a personal character based story.
1: Well, you I mean you've always and, loved you've always loved Greedo. You know, I mean, he's always meant a lot to you
0: right and so the first season is really an extended pilot I think for what will be his origin story (laughs) Um, kind of an origin of the origin story it's called Greedo first shots (laughs) playing on you know anyway kind of like Hamilton but in in many ways like the beloved American musical Hamilton I have chosen a great misunderstood leader and retold his life through song yeah Um, well through rap really No, just that the challenge is in, you know, 50 minutes, 60 pages or whatever, accomplishing seven things and setting the table for future hours to come. Very few people can do that successfully. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I hope it goes well. Damon Lindelof can do it. I'm not sure who else can do it, you know, and I think that Well, I mean, I guess we'll see not just in terms of my project, but I think in terms of what the types of shows that people will be checking for in the years to come, or even what's, what's getting ordered. I, I, if you have your spec, I I guess I'll put it this way. If there are people who are listening, who are trying to break in, write write Your big serialized drama, like try that now, you know what I mean? Don't, don't take your, your giant stakes sci-fi spec script and be like, well, I'm just going to use this script as the um, story document for seasons one through three. Right. Right, the TV show, right? you know? Not just because that's what we want to cover, but I do think that we're missing that. And I think the calibration has been a little bit off. And part of that, yeah, is, is the entrance of, of directors or big budgets or big expectations, but also this idea that TV, because it is elastic, you could make it a two hour or you could make it a 20 hour, that it somehow can be everything mm-hmm. all the time, all at once. And, it, and, and I think that we're running up against the limits of that.
1: Uh, do you think Good Lord Bird is good TV?
0: I struggle with it. It's a great question. Um, I really am enjoying the show. Yeah, you're one episode ahead. Really admiring had the show. Though, yeah. And speaking of speaking of our beloved Hamilton, David Diggs shows up in the third episode as Frederick Douglass. <laughs> um, he's great. And I think the thing that struck me about this again is, it's not TV. You know, I think that's kind of what I wanted to say about it. There's a big set piece at the end of the episode. I, this is not spoiling anything because this isn't really a show that can be spoiled except by history, where Onion is in uh, Frederick Douglass's office stealing a drink, and then both of the Frederick Douglass, the women in his life, his wife, and then a German woman who was rumored to be a mistress, but in the show, I believe in the book, fully presents her as like his sister, like sister wife. Like he basically has two women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then through a series of hijinks, he has these dramatic sexually charged scenes with both women while Onion is hiding under a desk, but they're aware that he's there. And I was like, well, this isn't TV. This is theater. Yeah. This is just fully, not just because Ethan Hawke's involved in David Diggs, but like, this was just theater. They, were, they didn't even try to be like, what's, you know, we're not, we're not trying to make it as if we are, uh, you know, the camera's looking in on things that could actually happen. We're just watching a scene play out and it's theater. It, it's enjoyable. It's a different vision of uh, a time in American history, with it certainly its own energy. It's not a TV show. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I don't like it. But is is yeah, there a TV I think to bring, show to bring it, to bring it
1: in there? Though is there is there a version of this that is a TV show? I guess is what I'm asking. I mean,
0: look, part of this is uh, you know th- these are champagne problems as a viewer because you can go to the. Um, all-night bodega that is our streaming service menu and be like, tonight I'm going to pull this out of the free deep freeze. I'm in the mood for this or I could watch something else. So I, I don't want to say, I think that we will look back on this time and be like, look at all these deeply idiosyncratic, interesting creative enterprises that were green lit during this era and feel like this is actually incredible. I mean, yeah. the, you know, Part of that brain is the same brain that was just like, oh, the famous band's worst album from 1976 is their best because it's more interesting and less known. Like this might be that era in a weird way for TV. Um, But yeah, like I think the thing is there's probably an incredible TV show set during this incredibly fraught time just while everything was simmering just before uh, the American Civil War popped off, right? But mm-hmm. that show, you're not going to get Ethan Hawke and David Diggs in it for multiple seasons. You know, you're not going to get direction of this caliber, necessarily a budget of this caliber for location shooting, or people like Steve Zahn or Wyatt Russell just willing to drop by as a favor. It's going to be something different, you know, and not necessarily better or worse, but different. And then final thing, just since we're bringing in um stuff we've been watching.
1: Yeah. Well, can I ask one one thing about Good Lord Bird? Because you yeah, mentioned yeah, yeah. Ethan Hawke is not going to sign on to do this for the Showtime, mm-hmm. the Showtime deal of <laughs> you can get out, but you could never leave. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: I think the Dexter.
1: there's a way in which good Lord bird could just be like a uh, wagon train or or like a 50s 60s TV yes. western where it's like sure. these these this group of people are moving from town to town or place to place in this area at this time and they pick some characters up along the way and they leave some characters behind along the way and essentially every week is a new stop that's how it's structured it has the bones of of a 50s or 60s western but it has the prestige to get back to the original thing here, it has the 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 sort of coat of paint on it that's like, yeah, but something really fucking important has to happen here in the it, next
0: four hours. But it's told in vignettes too, which mm-hmm. kind of de-escalates the, that feeling of like, I need to watch all this because it's building to, to one thing and one thing alone. I, I One thing I would like to talk, I mean, maybe we, we could get um, Nick Brad from FX or, or John Landgraf back on just to chat about this one thing in particular, because I'm curious what their attitude about all this is, because... I think I've mentioned a couple times I've been watching, we've been watching uh, What We Do in the Shadows, which is just a great comedy, the FX vampire comedy. And one of the things that I really, really admire and respect about it is that when you turned on the first episode, if you did, and chances are, you maybe maybe you'd heard of the movie that it was inspired by or loosely based on that Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi made. Maybe you knew those two names from Jemaine from Flight of the Concords or Legion or whatever, or Taika I guess it made the Thor movie at that point which was his biggest um, biggest global success. But if you turned it on the odds of you recognizing any of the people in the show are slim to none unless mm-hmm. you were a fan of like the single funniest show ever made Garth Marenghi's Dark Place which is only available on YouTube and Matt Berry was in that. But in one day we'll talk about that in full because I've been revisiting it. But you don't know who any of these people are. What you do know Is the very familiar but special pleasure of being like, oh, now I know who these people are. They're fucking incredible. Yeah. As these parts. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Discovery. Yeah. The discovery. And I'm like, now I'm into their vibe. No, it's like, that's like the
1: feeling you get when you saw like happy endings, where you're just like, holy shit, this group of people were made for each other. You know what I mean? Like that feeling where it It isn't like this was put together in a spaceship hovering over the CAA building. And this person decided that they were ready to do TV for six months, whatever. I mean, and you can still get that and have that cinematic vibe. I felt that way about Mindhunter. You know what I mean? Like you can still
0: oh, yeah.
1: pull people together and put them in this perfect position where you're like, I can't believe Groff is doing this. But more often than not, it's like, man, Ethan Hawk, he really crushed that. I, it's like, yeah, I Ethan Hawk even... was going to fucking crush that.
0: I can't believe I'm saying this about Fincher, considering there's no one more capital C cinematic in Fincher, but of all the shows that have been like, we're movies, but we're also TV, Mindhunter is a TV show. That's why it's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just a great TV show that happens to have these incredibly high values, but bringing it back to succession, I don't know if we commented on this specifically on the podcast, because we've we've made a fair number of comments over the years, but when the cast was announced for the Adam McKay pilot succession, Mm -hmm. I remember being like, Oh, okay. Um, we'll see. Yep. Jeremy Strong had just done The Big Short, and he was um, great in that, and turned a lot of heads. So that felt like that's kind of that's kind of traditional TV, or at least in the last ten years. Like pick pick this the, the guy on the come up or the the woman on the come up, and grab them under the big the seven year contract while you can. You know, Brian Cox is famous and a name, but he's not that's a household name. And Kieran Culkin, I was like, okay, well, he's always pretty good, but. But what are we, what do we do? And never heard of Sarah Snook. But that's why the show is good. That mm-hmm. is, you can't I mean, I don't want to figure out the exact percentage of why, but like why mad men, we didn't know who John Hamm was. He right. was that guy. Right. That that is part of the secret sauce of making a really successful long-running television Dude, same show. Same with Gandalfini,
1: same with Cranston. I mean, Cranston was Malcolm well, in the middle. It's like he was, yeah, it
0: was a but we heard it. We don't yeah. expect him to be this. Right. And that is a unheralded secret sauce that has fallen away. And by the way, will continue to fall away because money is tight and finances are strange and consolidation is coming. And so just to get in the door, you have to be like, yes, this is a television show based on a podcast and Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd are attached, which by the way, is the shrink next door, the show that went straight to series at Apple. That's how you get in the door at the meetings. Now, you know, I think it is extremely hard to do it the other way, but I, but I, I wonder as the consolidation and and all this is is happening and roiling the industry, whether someone will look at the bottom lines and be like, let's try a couple of the old way Mm -hmm. and see what we can and see how, what we can do here. Because, you know, again, bringing it all the way back to Fargo, this is painful for us to say because we adore him and he's, the greatest stand-up comedian of our generation, even though he's a little older than us. But Chris Rock is, isn't great on the show, mm-hmm. right? Like, that that's something... I didn't know if we were, we were going to actually say it. He's
1: but. not. He's hes not. He's not. I, I thought if it was going to happen, it was going to happen in this episode. And I was mm-hmm. trying to put myself in the headspace where I'm like, I since I fucking adore this guy, like, what's what is he doing here that I'm not understanding? Do you know what I mean? Like, I was giving his performance the benefit of the doubt. And I just think that this is an episode where a fair amount happened and there's a lot of teen, uh, scenery chewing. And I I actually, you know, there are other performances that I find a little bit more trying than Chris yeah. Rocks, specifically the Gaetano character. But, <laughs> you know, I just happen to think that Glenn Thurman and Jason Schwartzman and Ben Whishaw, and even though she's doing the most, Jesse Buckley are just, they're just a little bit more like in the, in the character and Chris seems to be, he seems to be reading the lines. I don't know. I mean, that's just my, that's just my, my take on it.
0: Well, well I think what I would say is to, to, to fold this into the larger conversation, there is, there's just a pretty big imbalance right now in television. And, and part of it is, you know, I've, I've made this comparison before, but a, a little bit like the way movies got where you had to have a big star and a package and they sell it on the poster. I mean, it, the blockbusterization of television continues. But what I, the way I'd like to, to phrase it here or to, or to to frame it is I 100% know why Chris Rock is doing Fargo season four and I admire it. I love it. It's great. I'm happy for him to have an opportunity like this, to try something different. I mean, to have as much success as he has had and then to be like, no, bring it on. Let's keep challenging. Let's go for it. That's what you want in people you admire. That's what you want in artists. Um, yeah. Similarly... I know why Ethan Hawke is making the Good Lord Bird. Cause look at him out there, yeah. Look at him out there, scrapping and yelling and mixing it up. You know, he's um, got Method Man's "You're All I Need" contacts in. <laughs> he's got, he's got, he's got Method. That's yeah. for sure. I like the Good Lord Bird more than I like Fargo season four, but I connect them in the sense that I absolutely understand why all the creative teams involved went for it. But in terms of the long-term success rate here of shows that are. Where the, where the weight, it's a little more weighted on like, I get why the stars are doing this or I get why the network is doing this or I get why the agencies who package this, although we're not packaging anymore. Thank you, WGA, are doing this unless why I, Joe Popcorn on the couch, eating an overpriced steak, <laughs> why I am doing this. Do you get what I mean?
1: Hey, man, that's what the podcast is for, to figure that out. What a nice little
0: chat. We're just asking the questions. You know what I mean? No, this
1: is good. Because, you know, like the last couple of weeks, I feel like we've been very episode and show, very Catholic about being like, in this episode, this happened, and this is what we're going to talk about. And we've had a couple more wide-ranging conversations, but I wanted, to, I wanted to hit a bunch of this stuff in a chat. So I'm glad we did.
0: Are we done? Is that the end of our chat? That's it. That's, I, That's I think the end of our chat?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you on text when we get into the World Series.
0: God, yeah, sports. We're we going to do sports. Should we pivot? should we pivot this podcast to sports? Just as
1: they're all ending, sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I make this comment too frequently, but I just think that I continue to have my pulse on the finger of this country. You do the night, Chris. That, that many people were watching the new Aaron Sorkin film, or uh, checking out new shows that were on Netflix, like that Grand Army show, or or maybe maybe watching Game Six uh-huh. of the NLCS. I was watching Gillian Anderson's. Uh, Proto-feminist masterpiece, the 1979 Australian film, My Beautiful Career. And, you know, that's when they zig, I zag. Nobody puts know, baby in a corner. Like, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Criterion Channel is getting a lot of burn in my household. You're one of a despite kind. The snack, despite the snack interruptions.
1: All right, man. I'll talk to you on Thursday. We're going to finish up third day and we'll have a few other things to hit. So happy Monday.
0: Keep it real. Great,
1: great chat. For